everybody. Welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and today's episode is a big one. I know you've all wanted to ask these questions, and so it's a two-parter. This is the first part on yoga. We hope you enjoy Wanted to talk today a little bit about uh, one of the, I think one of the, um, I've heard it come up multiple times, this question, uh, and uh, for some reason, um, you're the guy that gets asked this question uh, quite a bit uh, in, uh, in life. I know there are other people that have a lot of opinions on it and share the same opinions of it with you, but I know it specifically gets asked to you quite a bit, so we thought we would settle some of these issues once and for all. Uh, we've talked about, you know, can you eat blood? Uh, we've talked about stuff like that. And so we, want, we wanted to uh, give an opportunity for you, at least that you can say, just go listen to this podcast and, uh, and you shouldn't have to answer the question anymore. Um, so today we wanted to talk about yoga. Uh, and I know, um, you know, you have a lot of thoughts on that. I know a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on that. And it's super weird to me, honestly, how passionate people get with yoga. Um, I'll confess, uh, I've tried it during a P90X workout video and it was the worst. And so if I never have to do yoga again, (laughs) so I don't really understand what everyone is is so upset about. If we, if we do have to lose our yoga, uh, what's the big deal? Because it was the worst part of P90X uh, for me. And I would eventually skip it, not for spiritual reasons, but because I am very unflexible. But I wanted to to take some time and get you to speak to uh, this issue of yoga. Um, I know when you came to our church a few years back, uh, you just sort of like off the cuff uh, mentioned like uh, your thoughts on yoga. And I'm still cleaning up some of that uh, to this day as we're a church in, uh, in sort of the arts district of uh, East Nashville. Um, why don't you just lay the groundwork? Like, what, what do you think? Can, uh, can a Christian do yoga? Well, you know, the whole yoga thing, as you say, it's, it's sort of interesting how it has become such an impassioned topic. Um, you know, I get asked this a lot, and I, I want to be succinct, but I also want to be thorough. So there's a tension between saying too little and saying too much. But um, I'll just rewind here for a minute and say, if you go back to, I don't know, the 1960s or 70s, there was virtually no yoga anywhere in the United States of America. I mean, maybe if you were in New York City or San Francisco, you might find some of it, but it was not a universal thing. And, um, you know, in my travels, I've, I've met with uh, people in India where yoga comes from. And um, it, is, it is a fairly well understood thing, both within the Hindu community and the Christian community. I mean, they don't agree on a lot, but they agree on this. That back in those years, the 60s and 70s, the Hindu community was trying to figure out how do we break into America? How do we, how do we get there from here? And by their own admission, remember, people from places like India are much more spiritually attuned than Americans tend to be. 
because we've been raised with Western rationalism, the, the enlightenment paradigm. Uh, we don't believe in general in what anthropologists term the excluded middle, which is, you know, there may be God up in heaven and there's us down on the earth, but that middle zone between heaven and earth, the whole idea of angels and demons and ghosts and whatever else, uh, you know, people, people are not overly at home with that in Western uh, culture, and that would include America. So the Hindus were thinking, how do we, they didn't use this exact term, but I'm using language that most people can relate to. How do we evangelize the West with our Hindu beliefs? And they came up with the idea that yoga would be their primary vehicle for evangelism. And they would start sending people to the West to open yoga studios. And they would bill it as good, healthy exercise. And little by little, it would catch on, which they did, and it has. And so with that, and, and as I, I want to repeat something I, I said a moment ago, yoga is, the, the Hindus and the Christians agree that this happened. This isn't some, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. And so um, the- I ask you, Ken, like, um, like, can I ask you to cite some stuff on that? Well, this is all coming out of conversations I've had with Hindu leaders in India and with Christian leaders in India who either came out of Hinduism themselves, they were direct converts, or they may have been in the Christian community for a generation or two, but they know the environment in which they function as a minority religion. And so they, you know, they are speaking of, of that which they have seen and perceived. So this was, this was sort of the evangelism explosion tactics of the Hindus. I mean, if you want to put it that way, yeah. Because, I mean, look, you know, most, most religious of the major religions of the earth in one way or another have some kind of a, you can call it a marketing function if you prefer, but an outreach or evangelism or marketing uh, mechanism. Christianity, we call it evangelism from the word evangel or sharing the good news. But, you know, the Jews were known, at least in the time of Jesus, for proselytizing and trying to make proselytes to Judaism, converting people into the Jewish faith. Um, Buddhist, Buddhism today is not especially known as an evangelistic faith, but, you know, Buddhism started in South India and it spread from there to ultimately the, the center of Buddhism today is in Sri Lanka, which is not India proper. It's near India and there are many cultural similarities, but, but these are two different, entirely different cultures. Buddhism spread from, from there to Sri Lanka as its base and uh and all the way across southeast asia so that today when you think of countries like bangladesh or vietnam or cambodia or you know countries like that thailand is famous for its angkor wat i mean these countries have a strong buddhist heritage and it even spread into north asia uh, buddhism is a is a dominant religion maybe not the dominant religion in every country but it's a dominant religion in countries like korea and japan and china so buddhism was highly evangelistic and so uh, Islam, of course, needs no introduction to this. Now, I would say the history of Islamic evangelism, it has not always been peaceable, but uh, they have, the, the, the Muslims have gone out of their way to propagate their faith. So the idea, whether you, whether you call it evangelism or proselytization or whatever you call it, um, this is found in most of the major uh, belief systems of the world religiously.
maybe animists are not so evangelistic, but you know, they're the ones who believe that spirits live in rivers and rocks and trees and so forth. So for them, it's uh, it's a different kind of a world. So um, the Hindus have a 5,000 year history in, under their religion. Judeo-Christianity has about a 4,000 year history. So it's slightly younger than Hinduism. But you know, when we look at all of this, uh, the Hindus had decided that they wanted to, if you will, have a fresh push of sharing their view of the world, their religious faith and persuasion outside of the borders of India. So they decided that they would use yoga. And I've already talked about how that was uh, chosen to be, they would wrap it as a mind clearing exercise and a, and a health and wellness effort. And so this is what they did. And they began opening yoga studios all over the United States. And I can remember when this started, a lot of them folded and you know, nobody really paid a lot of attention to it. But little by little, it caught on. A new generation rose and people decided to try it out. And nowadays, people talk about yoga purely for its health and wellness benefits and, you know, how they can center or clear their mind or whatever they're talking about. But um, they, they talk about the tremendous aerobic capability it brings you if you're doing, you know, some of the more energetic or hot yoga forms. Uh, people talk about what it gives them in terms of flexibility in their body. But what's interesting to me is that when you in any way, you know, bring this up or talk about it, the incredibly sharp reaction you get, and I'm talking mainly specifically right now about Christians. I don't particularly care what you know, Muslims or Jews or others might say about Hinduism and, and yoga, but you get this sort of die in the ditch mentality. I'm not giving up my yoga and yoga is totally okay. And I'm doing my Christian yoga. Well, that's a complete contradiction of terms. Christian yoga is like saying Christian Hinduism because a yogi, a practitioner of yoga, a master of yoga is a highly developed Hindu uh, sadhu. And so with that, um, this is what we've really fallen into is something that, the, that is known anthropologically as syncretism. Syncretism, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N, S-Y-N is a Greek word that means with. So it's with, one with the other. It's the combining of two or more thought systems into one. So many Christians are so poorly grounded in their Christian faith that they do not understand that Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We worship one God who has eternally manifested himself through three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's only one divine essence, and that divine essence is uniquely associated with those three persons. And with that, it is completely and totally incompatible with the polytheism of Hinduism. And I might add further to that, that if we look at the history of the Old Testament, we look at why the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and went into exile, never to return, in the year 722 BC, 722 years before Jesus was born. And then the South Kingdom, known as Judah, and this is after the monarchy divided, it went into exile in 586 BC, and they went off to Babylon. The North Kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and the South Kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. Um, both of these conquests occurred because of the idolatry of the Jews who mingled the worship of the one God, Yahweh, 
with the worship of all the gods of the nations, which would have included not just Baal, Asherah, Molech, and others. It would have also included the worship of, well, Hindu gods. And in fact, in the, at the very tail end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, now, as you're getting ready to cross into the land the Lord is giving you, abandon the gods from beyond the river. And most commentators think, well, it's beyond the river Euphrates coming out of the Fertile Crescent. But in fact, there's another river, and it's called the Indus River. And the reason the, the people of India are called Hindus is they are the people who live beyond the Indus River. It's just that we've made the hard H, Hindu, into a soft H that is aspirated. So instead of the Hindus River, it becomes the Indus River. That's where the word Hindu comes from. And so Joshua is actually calling them not just to forsake the gods from beyond the, the Euphrates that are from the Fertile Crescent, the gods of the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and you know all of that that was part of their ancestral uh, lands when Abraham was called. He's saying, abandon even those gods that go back beyond that time, beyond the Indus River from the land of the Hindus. So this is a universal call in scripture. And no, I don't have my historical facts wrong. I just felt like I needed to insert that because there's people that are going to be saying, no, that's not right. That's not right. You can, you can check my facts. I have them right. Um, this is what's happened is Christians who are called to serve only one God through the name of Jesus, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Those very Christians have actually fallen to the same exact error of the Jews who went into exile first from the north in 722 BC, and then from the south in 586 BC. We've learned nothing. And yet the New Testament itself says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that these things that are, that are written down in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, were written as examples for us, us believers, us Christians, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so with that, I want to say, Christian, wake up. You're engaging in idolatry, and you don't even know it. You think you're just doing exercise, but the very systems of yoga, the very, the very postures you put your body into, the very exercises you undertake are themselves prayer postures that dedicate you to foreign gods from that other land. All right. So let's, let me, inter, let me just push on some of those. I think, I think you did a good job talking about the theology of why we, we can't have any other gods. And I think a lot of Christians would say, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down with, with just Jesus. And, uh, and going through that perspective, I, I don't think, most of the pushback on this comes from people saying, wait a minute, I'd like to be Hindu as well. I think a lot of people would say, well, I get it. I don't want to be worshiping a Hindu God, but why would I do a down dog, which is a yoga position? Right. Uh, how is that worshiping anything other than, other than this? So help us make the leap from. No, we, don't, we don't connect on that point for this simple reason. We in the West live with a worldview that is highly secularized. We do not have a spiritual worldview. Let, let me try to explain this a little more clearly. Um, right after the Second World War, a group of sociologists uh, went to India to do some studies on worldview. Uh, 
what is a worldview? A worldview is an, is an interlocking system of beliefs and perceptions that color the way we perceive the universe. And everybody has a worldview, but most people have never really thought about their worldview. They, they just sort of soak in it like a pickle in brine. And so if, if, if a pickle could talk, a pickle would say, well, what else is there than to be a pickle? I mean, of course we taste like, you know, vinegar and whatever things have been put into the pickle brine. But in fact, there are other ways to taste besides being a pickle. So these, these sociologists went to India and they were, you know, conducting studies. But one of the questions they asked was this one. They said, um, cotton does not grow in cold climates. England is a cold climate. Will cotton grow in England? Now, virtually anybody who comes from Europe, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, maybe even Japan, but anything that has a westernized kind of way of thinking, Japan is kind of on the boundary uh, because traditionally they're Eastern, but they've become very Western in their, in their mercantilism. So it, there you might find some question, but, but in the countries that traditionally would have been called Western lands, the almost reflexive answer is of course cotton doesn't grow in England. England is a cold country. You told me cotton doesn't grow in cold countries. England is a cold country. Cotton does not grow in England. We call this deductive reasoning. It's part of our worldview. It's hard, part of how we've been trained to think. Our entire scientific structure, our civilization is predicated on that kind of thinking. When you go to India, though, they have a very different worldview. And so when they started asking Indians, and I don't mean Indians like American, Native Americans, I mean Indians who live in India, that question, they universe got this answer. <clears throat> I don't know if cotton grows in England. I've never been to England. Because they function by inductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. And so even though you told me cotton doesn't grow in cold climates, and you told me England is a cold climate, I'm still not sure whether cotton grows in England. And the only way I would know that is to experience it. That shows you a worldview dichotomy between these two societies. Yes, I am aware things have changed since the Second World War. And in some quarters, some Indians are much more Western educated. Many Indians, particularly of the upper castes, have come to the United States and been educated in our universities. They've gone to England, been educated in their universities and other, other places as well. And so there's been some leakage of our point of view to theirs. But look, India is a big place, right? It's, it's got more than a billion people. And it's only the very upper tiers that are doing this. Much of the rest of India still lives in a very traditional way and holds to their traditional worldviews. So if you were to ask this question today in much of India, as long as you're not dealing with the aristocracy, the intelligentsia, they would say to you, I don't know, I'd have to go to England to find out if cotton grows in England. That's an example of a worldview conflict. So what does this have to do with yoga? Well, in our Western world, we think, well, look, I'm just doing exercise. It's cool. I, you know, I'm going to do my downward dog or my salute to the sun. By the way, in, uh, in the book of Second uh, Kings, chapters 22 and 23, and again in Second Chronicles, I think it's 33 and 34, we have the story of the reforms of King Josiah. And, you know, one of the things that had happened in the temple of the Lord is they had uh, put up chariots to the sun and the people were saluting the sun. Do you know what the opening pose is in most yoga workout routines? It's known as the salute to the sun. Mm -hmm. So that very thing that they were doing that's called out 
in the, in the Bible as one of the objectionable things that was going on in the temple is in fact right in the center of yogic practice. Where do you think that all came from? I think the people of Israel probably were doing some form of yoga. In fact, I recently read a book called uh, Greco-Buddhism, and it was on the export of Buddhism out of India into ancient Greece during the fifth century because Buddhism was founded in the sixth century BC. So by a hundred years after the Buddha had died, Buddhism had become evangelistic. Well, just so with yoga, so or with Hinduism in this case through yoga. So the Bible gives us reason enough to believe that there may have been some leakage of that thinking into the very uh, center of Judaism, which was ardently monotheistic with no idolatry allowed at all. But you see, we say, it's only exercise. I'm not doing it for the, for the religious value. And what a Hindu understands is that when you put your, here, let me put it this way. If you're looking at me on video, if I do this, what am I doing? Just so you know, if you're not looking at my video, his hands are in a prayer position. Okay, I'm praying, right? Yeah. If I do this, what am I doing? Looks like you're praising. Right, maybe I'm praising. I'm raising my hands to God and worshiping. If I am doing that in a church, I think we all understand the context. Hands together near my face means I'm praying. Hands apart but raised, palms outward, lifted above my head. That probably means I'm praising, but I'm worshiping God in both cases. If I step out of the church and I do it in the, in the parking lot, what am, I, what am I doing? You're still making those motions. Right. I'm still worshiping God. And so a lot of these poses they've been removed from the Hindu temple. They've been, as it were, dumbed down or stripped down of their overtly religious meeting because they're not in the temple. But if you were to see in a, in a Hindu ashram or a Hindu temple, people doing these poses, you'd go, darn, if that doesn't look like the very thing I'm doing down at my health club when I go there to work out. And the answer is exactly right. What you don't realize is you change the context. Again, going back to what I said analogically, I was doing it in the church. Now I'm doing it in the parking lot of the church. Did it really change? No, not really. Well, if I take it out of the Hindu temple and do it down at my health club, did it really change? The answer is no, not really. These are prayer postures, and they are dedicated to specific Hindu gods, which you may have no knowledge of or sensitivity to, and yet you are bringing yourself under the spiritual power of that, and I believe this is part of the very sharp reaction we often see when people are confronted about this, because in so many words, they are manifesting the very spirits that they have taken on board by these activities, and they do not realize that they are actually under the power of something other than the Christian God whom they profess to worship. Okay, a lot of things there. Um, so let me ask you this question. What, uh, and I'm asking you questions that I've been asked. So, um, where does will and intent come into play in all of this? In other words, if I'm not intending to worship a Hindu God, and if I am, let's say, because there is Christian yoga where they put on worship music and stuff like that, I guess. I've never done that before. Um, you know, in what in what aspect does that come into play where I say, look, I'm not worshiping some Hindu God. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm worshiping Jesus. And I'm also doing a down dog pose because it helps my back. Like, work me through how, how does that work? And then, and then, you know, since you went there, then how does that work in like a demonization standpoint where it's like, 
you know. Well, you know, I get a lot of questions from people about, can I do this? Is that okay? And I always tell people, look, I don't want to be the, the clearinghouse, the demon clearinghouse. And I also don't want to be the guy who, you know, grants you permission to do this or that. You stand or fall unto the Lord yourself. But, you know, I will give people guidance based on, you know, the way I read the scripture. And so, um, you know, there are some things that are just not permitted for followers of the one true God, the Jews we believe knew him as Yahweh, although generally a good Jew will not even to this day dare say that name. It's too sacred and too holy. So instead they just call him Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. So the Jews know him as the name Hashem. Um, Christians have been taught by Jesus to call him father. And we approached our father through the person of the son. This is what we've been told. So, and the fa and Hashem decided to send his son uh, in order to give us that, that access and that revelation. Well, when you're, when you're a, a person who is trying to ride the line, I would say, um, you don't always know what you are getting yourself mixed up with. Again, because your worldview doesn't even allow for the fact that certain poses, certain actions, certain deeds might be problematic to you. And so, again, I'm speaking analogically to try and paint the picture more clearly. Um, I have had friends that have at different times gone to friends' weddings. And the, in the cases I'm thinking of, they may have gone to a Hindu wedding, which may have actually been held in a Hindu temple. And as part of that wedding ceremony, they may have been painted with uh, what are called henna tattoos. They're not permanent, but they last maybe three or four weeks. Um, and as part of that ceremony, they may have lit incense to Hindu gods or taken fruit up to the front, offered sacrifices of flowers. There's different things they might have done. We don't need to go into all the ins and outs of each specific thing, but, but these sorts of behaviors. But you know, strangely enough, somehow afterward, they, they end up with problems. Now they're getting headaches their digestion is out of order, whatever it is. And, you know, they come for prayer and we end up having to sort all this out. And what do you know, in a lot of these cases, these people have actually picked up evil spirits going to a Hindu wedding. They're like, well, I didn't know that was wrong. I mean, I thought it was fine. I'm just going to my friend's wedding. And I'm like, yeah, but you were in a Hindu temple and you're not supposed to go into the temples of foreign gods. You're not, you're not, you're supposed to do this because you're supposed to worship Hashem through Yeshua. And this is, this is the only authorized worship you're allowed to engage in. Well, does that mean I can't go to my friend's wedding? Well, it might mean that. You, 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 you know, what is your loyalty here? Is your loyalty to God or is your loyalty to your friend? I mean, the, the scripture is clear. Number one command, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one Lord and him only shall you serve. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you will love your neighbor as yourself, but it's not the same as it. And I think in the West, many times we've kind of reversed things because we have a very humanist perspective. We say, well, the way, the best way to love is to love my neighbor. And I, I agree in general, that is a true statement. But our, our highest allegiance and loyalty is to love God first and our neighbor second. And even Jesus himself said that. And so part of how we do that is by having a loyalty to the way that God wants us to live. And so let's expand that idea a bit. 
There is a substance, I have a book on my shelf called plutonium, the most dangerous element on earth. Now plutonium is used, I think most people know, uh, to build nuclear weapons and it's also used to power nuclear reactors. And the book doesn't really make the point that plutonium used in bombs is, is the most dangerous thing on earth. I mean, it is dangerous in that sense. Um, and so don't hear me advocating for nuclear weapons, but, but I'm just saying that's not really the primary thrust of the, of the author's argument. The author's argument is that plutonium is so dangerous that it can hardly be handled. It's a man-made element, doesn't occur naturally in nature. It's transmuted in a nuclear reactor out of uranium. And so it has a higher atomic number even than uranium. And once it has become plutonium, the very nature of plutonium is such that it is the most toxic element that we know of. And if you were to take a, a single piece of plutonium the size of a grain of rice, and you were to put it somewhere in your home, anywhere in your home, within 30 minutes, everybody within your home would receive a fatal dose of radiation and would be doomed to certain death from radiation sickness. That is how lethal plutonium is. And yet the funny thing about plutonium, you can't smell anything, you can't see anything, you don't hear anything, you don't feel anything, you don't taste anything. It's completely imperceptible to you. Well, think of spiritual reality that way and now think of positive spiritual influences and negative spiritual influences. And the negative spiritual influences are as lethal as plutonium. And a lot of times Christians are dabbling in things where in so many words, they've got a piece of plutonium sitting right next to them. Or if you wanna say it this way, they go into the yoga studio, they might as well have stepped into the nuclear core of Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, or pick your favorite other nuclear power plant, and they're being irradiated and they don't even realize it. And after the fact, they've got all these problems. Why? Because there is spiritual reality that they don't perceive because we don't have a worldview to perceive it. And yet Hindus do perceive it. Chinese do perceive it. People who have been raised in Africa do perceive it because they have a completely different perception of things than we do. I'm simply trying to bring that perception back to people. It's based in the word of God. It's based on the realities I've seen of what happens in people's lives when they've become tangled up in yoga. And yet people fight it and resist it because without realizing it, they are entangled because they've given themselves over to something they didn't know how dangerous it was. So, and you know, and I hear that in uh, Jesus's words uh, in John 10, 10, he says, you know, the thief uh, comes uh, so that he can steal, kill uh, and destroy. Um, and I think, I think many of us forget um, that there's actually an enemy and, and he's not very neutral. And he's not waiting on us for to get to hell, that uh, he's trying to inflict as much damage as possible on us today. And That's so, right. and he he's pretty active with it, and he's pretty intentional with it. And uh, and I think we probably should be uh, be more aware uh, of his schemes. Well, the uh, other thing that Jesus said about the devil is he was a liar from the beginning. Mm. Well, what is it to lie? It's to tell an untruth knowing full well that you are going to mislead people. It's, it has the intention of deceiving and misleading. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. Well, we know as an example, 
mean, whether you believe it's literal or allegorical doesn't matter at this point. But in the book of Genesis, Satan lied. He said to Eve that uh, God knows that in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God himself and you will not surely die. And yet God had said, if you eat of it, you will die. And so Satan says, well, you won't die. And so it, as he does this, Eve perceives that the fruit is good to eat. And so she reaches out and eats of it. And suddenly her eyes were opened. She gives it to Adam and he, he knows better than to do it too. And he falls too. And so now the whole of the human race has fallen. Why? Because of a lie, because of a deception. Did Satan know that eating that fruit would be deadly to Adam and Eve and with it the whole of the human race? Absolutely. Do you think by leading people into a, I'll call it a modified form of idolatry, which appears to be stripped down of all of its lethal tendencies because of the risk of polytheism, of worshiping other gods, do you think Satan might be crafty enough, cunning enough, deceitful enough, a liar enough to persuade people that it is fine to go ahead and do these things that are dedicated to Hindu gods and tell them it's, it's only exercise, don't worry about it. I think he is, I think he's that good. I think he's been at this a long time and I think he's smarter than any of us. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know some of the things from you, Ken, I know you, we, we've talked about uh, people want to ask you whether or not this is okay, basically trying to seek permission. Right. And you've expressed to me uh, several times, like, why is nobody thinking about this? And, and I think, I honestly think that's probably why you get a lot of these kind of questions because not a lot of us are thinking about this. Uh, you know, I think through our discussions, there's been multiple things where I've thought, well, you've said something. I'm like, what do you mean? That's, that's not okay. You know? Right. <laughs> And it's, it's uh, I think having this out there, even if people decide to disagree, even if people decide to whatever, let's start being more thoughtful in what we can potentially pollute ourselves with. I think that's a good way, uh, a good way to, to put it in, in regards to, um, uh, what was it, plutonium? Is that what you said? What's yeah, the plutonium, yep. Um, it, at least let's get us thinking, you know, how can we avoid uh, these traps? This concludes part one of a two-part conversation centered around yoga. Tune into the next episode to hear the conclusion of that conversation. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening.